Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 3rd of July. For today's podcast we're looking at a story that's reported by just one of the four gospel writers. Peace is an important element in the story and we have two songs about peace today. We will also hear a piece of music by DJ Norman Cook, known as Fatboy Slim, and it exhorts us to praise. And we've begun with a song whose title is very true for many of us, Life is a Roller Coaster. Some notices. Today's on-site service will include a celebration of the Lord's Supper, to which all who love Jesus are welcome. There will be a free church service at the Cathedral on Wednesday at 11 o'clock in the morning when the very Reverend Joe Kelly Moore will be the preacher. The church magazine is now available from the foyer or the cafe, and it's also online on the church website. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 66. Shout joyful praises to God all the earth. Sing about the glory of his name. Tell the world how glorious he is. Say to God how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. Everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Come and see what our God has done, what awesome miracles he performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea, and his people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in him, for by his great power he rules forever, He watches every movement of the nations. Let no rebel rise in defiance. Let the whole world bless our God and loudly sing his praises. Our lives are in his hands and he keeps our feet from stumbling.
Creator God, you are our all. You created and crafted us. God of the journey, you are our journey, our aim, our purpose, our goal. God of welcome, you receive each of us, no matter who and what we are. God of peace, you give us peace, and you call us to be one in you, and to share that peace. God of blessing and abundance, God of peace and love, you have offered and given us so much. You have revealed so much to us. You have guided and guarded us on our life's journey. And yet we are so often ungrateful. So often we ignore what has been given. So often we have failed to see all that you show us. So often we have not sought peace with those around us. So often we have not shared with others your word of love and peace. Forgive us, O God, that your blessings have been squandered by us, ignored by us, misused by us, abused by us. Forgive us, O God, and in the silence of this moment, accept our confession. Blessed be you, Lord God, for your forgiveness. Blessed be you, Lord God, for your guidance. Blessed be you, Lord God, for your acceptance of us. Blessed be you, Lord God, that we can know our sins, our failings, and are forgiven. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, the first 11 verses, and then verses 16 to 20. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go, and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveller's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's house, first say, May God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. 
don't move around from home to home, stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. Then he said to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me, and anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. I have for a long time been intrigued by this story of the 72 disciples whom Jesus sent out. This is the only time that this wider group is mentioned. We know plenty about the 12 disciples, and we know that the ones whose voices feature most prominently, Peter, James, John, Thomas, all at one time or another managed to misunderstand Jesus or let him down in some way. And this makes me wonder about those outside this group. How on message were they? I think of that scene in the life of Brian when a follower at the back of the crowd thinks he heard Jesus say, Blessed are the cheesemakers. Was it to those such as these, the confused, the weak and the mistaken, that Jesus entrusted this mission? One of the issues this passage raises comes up in the light of how our reading ends. Another is this idea of the kingdom of God coming near. But the first theme that I'm going to address is what this passage tells us about Jesus' attitude to wealth and possessions. One of the reasons I'm reluctant to downsize from our seven-seater car is that it's so useful for packing lots of stuff that might be helpful when we go camping, although I now realise that it's six years since we last unpacked our tent. I would find Jesus' instruction to the 72 very stressful. It sounds like the sort of thing one might read in one of the rough guide handbooks. Do not take a purse or bag. But this isn't a warning to be careful of pickpockets. Rather, it's a warning against self-reliance, taking everything that you might possibly need. It is this that's the key in our thinking about Jesus' attitude towards possessions and wealth. You see, if we look at what Jesus had to say about money and things we might perceive a certain ambivalence. Someone has said that while Jesus consistently talks about possessions, he does not talk about possessions consistently. As it's the book from which we've taken our passage, if we just stick to the Gospel according to Luke, we find that on more than one occasion, Jesus preaches the need to renounce everything as part of discipleship. It's hard to believe anything other than this was important. No, not just important, an essential component to following Jesus. 
And yet there are other factors that we need to consider. Jesus was very happy to accept the hospitality of wealthy people and to dine on fine food at their tables. He was supported in his ministry by a number of wealthy women, wives of some of the top people in Palestine. And not everyone, it seems, was required to give up everything. When Zacchaeus was confronted by Jesus, the tax collector offered to give away half of his wealth. Perhaps we wouldn't have been surprised if Jesus had said to Zacchaeus, What do you mean, half? Everything, that's what I'm asking. Empty your pockets. I want all you've got. But no, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house. Nothing about how much he should give away. So what's the difference between Zacchaeus and those others to whom Jesus said, give it all up? Well, the real answer is, of course, that we don't know. We can't see into the heart of Zacchaeus or into the heart of that young man who wanted to know how to get eternal life. But what we can do is hold these various stories together and see if we can find a theory that fits. A clue to our understanding can be found in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We should note that Jesus doesn't say here that yours will be the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God belongs now to those who are poor, and it belongs to them in the here and now. Jesus elaborates on why this is a couple of pages on from our reading in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 31. This is what we read there. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow nor reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. The answer then is that discipleship has less to do with poverty or wealth, but more to do with not worrying about either. Why do the poor possess the kingdom of God? It's because they can't be self-reliant. They are forced to place their faith in God. They don't have the security blanket of wealth or possessions. And it's this that Jesus says is required of those who take up the call to mission. But this is not all about money and things. When God called Moses to go to Pharaoh to ask for the freedom of the Hebrew people, Moses was understandably nervous. He had no standing and telling Pharaoh that he'd come in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob wouldn't cut the mustard. And so what God next said to Moses is interesting. God said, What have you got in your hand? Moses replied, A staff. Then God said to Moses, Throw it on the ground. When Moses did as he was told, the staff turned into a snake. 
This was just the first of three signs that God gave Moses to use when he encountered Pharaoh as a means of showing Pharaoh that Moses had come from someone who means business. It's that question that God asked that I want us to consider for a moment. What have you got in your hand? What do you have about you already? God has a history of using what people have about them already, the skills and talents they have, the people they are. One of the great mysteries about God is that he has consistently chosen to limit himself by using the least likely agents to carry out his mission. If we were to list the people in the Bible whom God chose, we find that many were weak or corrupt. However, this situation is a little like that of Jesus having been born in a stable. We marvel at this. God born in a stable. But the biggest wonder is that God chose to be born a human being at all. We are surprised that God chose a man like Jacob to be the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, when the real mystery is why God has chosen to work through human agency at all. When Jesus chose these 72 people to go on this mission trip, there seems to have been no selection process, no two-day series of interviews to test suitability of personality, education, experience and calling, as we do for Baptist ministry. Now, I'm not knocking the way that we select people for ministry. It simply goes to illustrate that we are not Jesus. The only qualification for this work was the call and commission of Jesus. They didn't need a load of stuff to do the work. In fact, it was better that they didn't take a load of stuff. If they went with only what they had, they would then be in a better position to rely upon God. Another issue that concerns many of us is age old. Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. That was what Moses said, and I'm sure that a few of us would say the same thing. Knowing what to say often isn't easy. I know that I've said this before, but one of the many reasons why it's important to talk about our faith, our struggles as well as our successes, with one another, is that it helps us when we come to talk to other people, for whom faith is alien. The promise of this passage is that God gives us the words. I read a story some years ago about an elder of a church who was concerned about a visit that he had made to a hospital where a young mum had given birth to a baby with Down syndrome. The elder spoke to his pastor about his concerns. Pastor, I didn't know what to say. We talked for a few minutes, they let me hold her, and I told them she was beautiful. Pastor, I didn't know what to say. He went on to describe how he'd prayed, thanking God for their child and asking God's peace and blessing on their family. A couple of weeks later, the elder again spoke to his pastor and showed him a note from the young mum. She thanked him for his visit and for his prayer. And then she concluded her note, Thank you for not saying what so many people said and telling us how sorry you were. We are so happy to have our baby. Thank you for sharing our family's joy. I guess that we sometimes know what to say, even when we don't know what to say. Finally, let's think about this mission as a whole. This story is mentioned in only one out of the four gospel accounts. 
However, this story of the 72 who go out to proclaim the good news may actually have a greater bearing on the spread of the gospel after Pentecost than anything that the 12 disciples did. That may sound a little crazy, bearing in mind what I've just said about the way in which the mission of the 72 is scarcely mentioned. So how can it be of any huge significance in the story of the church? Well, if we compare what happened with John the Baptist's movement to what happened to the Jesus movement, we find that with John in prison, things fizzled. John's movement was crushed, his power snuffed out, and his followers dispersed. But what of Jesus? After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we know that there were at least 72 missionaries, all good to go. If each of those missionaries had managed to recruit just two others to the cause, we've reached a figure of over 200 very quickly. Pentecost came and God's Spirit was poured out on the church and now there was no stopping the Jesus movement. We hear from Stephen and from Peter and Paul. We read about a man called Apollos, but the gospel wasn't the work of a few star evangelists. The gospel was spread by hundreds of missionaries. And of course this remains true today. While we shouldn't decry the work of big-name evangelists and preachers, nor should we ignore the part played by small-name pastors and preachers, for we are all missionaries, every one a missionary. And so I refer you back to what I said earlier. If God has called you to follow him, he's also called you to be a bringer of good news, and he's given you whatever words he would have you say. But this story is not all about good news. The passage we're looking at is that prescribed by the lectionary for this Sunday. And as sometimes happens, the lectionary has omitted some verses. It often does this to make the story clearer, but it sometimes does it to take out verses that it might consider unhelpful. For example, when we read Psalm 137, we usually stop soon after the part about the rivers of Babylon where we sat down. It's unusual to read the last verse in which the psalmist says of the Babylonians, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Not a lot of forgiveness going on there. The reason for the verses having been left out of our reading today could be that it was thought necessary, as the story is about the 72 missionaries. On the other hand, there is a slight suspicion that it also has something to do with avoiding negativity. However, the missing verses contain an important warning. Reject the kingdom of God at your peril. The words that Jesus gave his missionaries were to tell the people that the kingdom of God has come near. The way that this is set in the passage suggests that it's good news that the kingdom of God has come near. However, there is something about coming near that might also be disconcerting. While the kingdom of God having come near is good news for those who received it, it's not so good for those who don't. This was intended as a warning to those who rejected God's call, but it could also act as a warning to all of us. The kingdom of God has come near and you missed it. God is at work in our world and so we need to keep our eyes open, otherwise we might be passed by. The reign of God has come near, whether we saw the miracle or missed out on it. But that's not the last warning in this passage. The 72 come back from their mission trip like teenagers back from spring harvest or greenbelt. It was great, they told Jesus. You should have seen the things we did. We even gave the demons a good hiding. 
from reading the gospel stories, we know that whenever one of his disciples says anything remotely self-congratulatory, Jesus will quickly pour cold water on them. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Jesus told them. While they'd enjoyed their successes, Satan had not gone away. Luke makes that clear at the end of his telling of the temptations that Jesus experienced. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. None of this should be a great surprise after Jesus had already warned that I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. This is not an easy task to which these missionaries had been called. While they've come back elated, having seen God at work, there would be dark days ahead. There was a storm coming. This is a roller coaster world. Like most of us, they go forth filled with a hope that it may all be joy. But there is a harvest of tears waiting in the world, and the 72 are sent to face that too. This is a roller coaster world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who commissioned his students in the underground church to go forth into the Third Reich and proclaim the gospel while facing the possibility of death, made the distinction between cheap grace and costly grace, the grace which is truly from Christ. Cheap grace, he said, expects endless pleasantness and is unwilling to confront evil. True grace knows the cross is part of life in Christ. Truly, this is a roller coaster world. The final verse in our reading offers a calming word, but also a promise to these missionaries and therefore to us. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We should go in expectation that God's kingdom will come near and that we will see signs of God at work. We will see good things happen as we travel with God's Spirit in the name of Jesus. Let us pray. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Amen.
Let us pray. Blessed God, we have thought and reflected on peace and love, and now we bring our prayers, among others, for those who live without peace and those who find no love. For those whose lives are lived with the backdrop of war, violence and conflict. Those whose families have been torn apart and fractured by the act of war. Those who find themselves without home, without family, without love, cast adrift from what they know and what has nurtured them because others have acted callously and violently, greedily and selfishly. For those who live in fear each day of more attacks and more bombs and violence. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. For those who've lived and who still live in loveless households, where violence and abuse are the norm, where people live treading on eggshells for fear of the next abusive attack and violent outburst. For those who fear for their safety on a daily basis, who inwardly cry for help, but outwardly are fearful of asking for it. For those who seek to help and bring into the open the abuse and who seek to offer love. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. For those who are discriminated against because of gender identity, disfigurement, disability, religion or ethnic origin. When we're all made in God's image, such discrimination seems to go against the commands to love our neighbours as ourselves, to treat others as we would like to be treated. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. For those in authority, in business and government, that they may see a way forward that is honest and respectful, that treats those in need with dignity, care and support that they may offer hope and light to the underprivileged and those in need. May society become a kinder, more inclusive place that values the needs and respects the views of those around them. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. For families and households across the world who are struggling and will struggle yet more with the cost of living increases and commodity shortages that abound. For those who go without because they have no choice, while others live excessive lifestyles. For those who feel forced into crime as a way of surviving, and who end up in deeper, darker, more needy places as a result. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. For the lonely and the lost, the bereaved and the grieving, the ill and the dying, that hands of love, fellowship, hospitality and care may be stretched out to them, that warmth and love and light and hope may be passed by a gentle touch, a smile, a word. God of peace and love, bless those for whom we pray. Bless all these, O God, for whom we've prayed, that they may come to know compassion from us and life from you. Amen.
Our last song is called Peace and is sung by Beth Nielsen Chapman, someone who has in her own life known many ups and downs. But first, a final prayer. Where there is conflict, let there be peace. Where there is fearfulness, let there be peace. Where there is anger, let there be peace. Where there is violence, let there be peace. May God's peace rest on our homes and all who live in them. Amen. I have come from so far away down the my peace.